church, if you could make your ways to your seat, and if you're able, please stand with us as we sing and celebrate that we are people of a risen King and Savior. Struggling in the fight For his perfect love will never change And his mercies never cease But follow us through all our days With a certain hope of peace and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Come young and old from every land, men and women of the faith. Come those with full or empty hands, find the riches of His grace. Over all the world His people sing, shore to shore we hear them call. The truth that cries through every age, our God is all in all. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice, one heart, one voice, O church of Amen to that. You know, in John chapter 11, we read about the account of when Lazarus died, a good close friend of Jesus. And Jesus had heard the report that Lazarus was sick, but he delayed on purpose in going. And it says, but when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, this illness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, which is a very interesting perspective to have 
on a life-threatening situation and even on death, that this is for the glory of God and the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, how did that happen? Well, Lazarus died and Jesus shows up later and he says to those who are in mourning, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's the question for us this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that though you may die, if Jesus does not return, that though you may die, you yet shall live when your trust is in him alone? If you do, that's the cause of celebration that we're here together for this morning. We are so glad that you are here worshiping God with us today. And every day is a special day of worshiping God. And every day is never an accident. The fact that you are here, it doesn't matter if you've been coming here for years or if this is your first time visiting, there's no accident that you are here. God has brought you here on purpose, and we are so glad that you're here together so that we can minister together. And we would just love to, for you to take your worship folder out. If you, have a t- if you have one already, you should have grabbed one when you walked in through the door. Uh, the worship folder has all sorts of information about what's going on in our church, but it also has a check-in card. And in there, if you could fill that out real quick, um, you can, uh, it's, it's helpful for us to let, to let us know that you are here. But also there's a chance for you to put prayer requests on the back and praises. If you don't like paper, if it's icky, um, you can fill it out digitally on our church app, which you can download for free. At the end of the service, you can take that check-in card and you can just slip it in the white tables at either entrance on your way out. If you are visiting with us, uh, we are so glad you're here. Thank you for choosing to be at Newcastle this morning. Uh, We would love to make you feel as welcomed and loved as possible. Uh, You can ask anybody sitting around you if you have any questions about the church. I know they'd love to meet you and answer questions. But we also have just outside these double doors a welcome desk. And there you can go at the end of the service if you'd like and ask any questions you have. We'd also love to give you a gift. So if you stop by, that'd be our opportunity to get to know you better and to love on you so that we'd love that opportunity. Now at this moment in time, if you direct your attentions to the screen, we have a video we'd like to show you. I think the aspect of my life group that means the most to me is um, always having a group of ladies that I can contact contact one or contact um, all of them. It means a lot to know that someone's in tune to me, like I hope I'm in tune to them. We have a list of prayer requests from the past and we cover them. We, we uh, uh, entertain new requests and we pray fervently for it. And we have the confidence that our brothers and sisters in Christ in our life group will pray for us at all times. Sharing life together, um, loving on one another, um, speaking truth and love, um, just the, the atmosphere of having um, other families that are like-minded um, and just uh, doing life together. It's those relationships that you can just walk in the front door, but, but really it's more than that. It's being able to reach out and um, share your uh, your temptations, have people pray for you. It's, it's sharing the things that you struggle with, it's sharing your joys, it's sharing um, the parts of your lives that you don't share with others normally. And it's a safe place to, to ask for help when you need it as well. Oh yeah, it was good to see Jobini talk finally. 
I'd seen you in all the other week's uh, videos, and you had your notepad. I was like, he's got something to say. When's he going to get to say it? This was the week. So that was so sweet, though, to get to hear all the different reasons why life groups are so appreciated and the impact that they have on people's lives. So this is our last uh, Sunday of uh, our kind of life group kickoff. And so if you have yet to kind of research our life groups or uh, to check them out, just outside those doors in the hallway, there's a bunch of panels and you can check out all the different life groups we have. So if you're not plugged into one yet, we'd continue to encourage you to pray about that, to check out and see if there's a good fit, you know, because you know, a lot of you are from different towns around this area. So there's life groups that are in different areas that help meet the needs of people. So you don't have to travel really far. There's some life groups that have like childcare and all those kinds of things. So you want to see if there's one that kind of helps you out the most, but we'd really encourage you to do that. And if, if for some reason you can't make it to a life group, we just want to encourage you to get plugged into a biblical community beyond just a Sunday morning service, because it's just a really vital aspect to your soul care, to your ongoing sanctification growth in Christ's likeness. So there's lots of other opportunities and ways that you can find that biblical community. If you're not sure, uh, talk to one of the elders, pastors, talk to the church office, email or call, and we would love to help you get plugged in to a biblical community. And the last thing is we're just really excited to have our special guest, Pastor Josh Gerber, here with us this morning. Uh, he just got, he and his wife Kelly just got done doing a 9.30 hour Q&A in front of our church. And if you missed that, it should be recorded on our Facebook or YouTube account. You can go and check that out. Um, but we just encourage you to um, meet them at some point this morning before they leave. Encourage them and just uh, be blessed by them as Josh brings us the word this morning and preaches to us. We're so excited about that. But before we continue singing, would you please bow your heads with me as I pray? <sighs> Jesus, you are our risen king, and there is no other ruler that is as great as you are, Lord. You are majestic, you are just, you are righteous, and you have blessed us as your people. Uh, You have blessed us in the fact that you have called us your people despite our rebellion against you, Lord. You have humbled yourself to the point of dying on the cross to save us from our sins in order to gather us in so that we would be your sons and daughters. You have lavished your blessings upon us, Lord, and I pray this morning that we would just testify to the wonders of who you are. Despite our sinfulness, you are constant, you are faithful, you are true. And I pray that you would be honored and magnified through all the things we do this morning, through the praying together as we sit under the teaching of your word. Please, please continue to sanctify our church and grow us and build us up, Lord. And then may we go forth with the precious treasure of the gospel in our hearts so that we may spread it abroad within our spheres of influence, within our communities, uh, just overflowing with joy at being able to tell people the good news about what you have done. We ask your blessing over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand as we continue singing? commands all the hosts of heaven who else could make every king bow down 
Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. Come and behold Him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy forever. consumes like fire what other power can raise the dead what other name remains undefeated only a holy is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him Father? Only a holy God, only my holy God.
be seated. Good morning, Newcastle. Only a holy God, indeed. It sounded really good this morning. What a sweet hymn to, to start with. A couple things to talk about here before we move to, to prayer. Uh, first, I think let's dismiss Children's Church. So this would be ages three to kindergarten. Uh, any young folks uh, will go upstairs to Children's Church. We got some teachers up there who are excited uh, to teach the youth the gospel in a way that's a little easier for them to understand. Would you move there toward the back? All right. One more, a uh, couple of things here. So we are grateful uh, as leadership that God continues to provide leaders here at, at Newcastle. Uh, many of you have heard of our, we call it EID, short for Elder in Development Process, that we use to identify the men that the Holy Spirit has gifted as leaders. So we say that really specifically uh, because God makes elders, right? The Bible's really clear about the fact that, that we don't build them, we don't make them. It's not something that we put together. God makes people by the power of the Spirit leaders, uh, and it's our job to recognize them. So you know, we have a process. We, we look for men who are serving and who are walking with the Lord, uh, nominate them. Once they decide to pursue that, that development, um, they're assigned a mentor and a team, and so then they, they just start serving right alongside us. They're uh, in, de in that development process. They also have a curriculum of some equipping resources and some practical tasks as they learn how to pray up front and do uh, visitation. And the end of that process includes uh, an ordination council with the, the elders. Uh, where we all affirm we've, we've served with them now for a couple of years. Uh, and so we can affirm that they're ready to be, ready to be elders. So we're thankful to announce that Chris Metalman uh, has completed this process. So the, the elders are ready to recommend him uh, to you, to the church for ordination. Uh, inside your, your bulletin today is a, a sheet with some information about uh, Chris and his family. Um, sweet, sweet people. They're such a gift. Um, to us. So hopefully you've had a chance to meet them uh, before, but you can learn more about that there. So in two weeks, on September 4th, uh, we'll have a vote for our members to affirm, um, to affirm that decision. So the elders were recommending him uh, to serve as an elder, and then we'll look for a vote for the members to affirm that. In those two weeks, so between now and September 4th, if you have any questions or if there's anything on your mind about Chris and, and his service as an elder here, um, that's the time to get that taken care of. So please uh, bring it up, approach him or one of the elders. Uh, we want to get those questions answered for you so you can um, joyfully uh, vote to affirm him, hopefully on the 4th. Um, and then I would say, please encourage this family in the next two weeks here. This is a significant thing to move into to eldership. It's a commitment for them. It's a commitment for their family. Um, so encourage them in this as they move uh, toward this vote on the 4th. So for that vote, uh, we'll have paper ballots in service. Uh, we also have the, the online option. So there'll be two questions on there, just so you're ready for it and you're not stumped. The first one is, are you a member? And the second one is, yes or no? Do you affirm him for that? So it's going to be a real simple uh, 
set of questions there. We'll count those votes Sunday afternoon the 4th. As long as that goes the way we hope it does, then we'll plan on an ordination service the next week, the 11th. So it's lots of information. We'll repeat it again, but uh, that's what we would look at. We'll have his ordination during the 930 hour on the 11th. So please be praying for this. This is a big deal. Uh, recognizing again, these people that, that God has made elders, uh, our recognition of that. We need his wisdom. We need his clarity as we think about it. So continue to pray for it. So more fun stuff. I'm going to talk about uh, new member introductions today. So this is an exciting thing here to, to introduce some new members. So you hear us talk about church membership a lot here. Um, it, is, it is a big deal. The, the truth of the scriptures is that God saves people wherever they are. God goes out and saves people wherever, wherever they're living, but then he calls them to live out their sanctification, to grow to be more like Jesus in a community of believers. That's God. The, the Bible knows nothing of, of God saving someone in the wilderness, so to speak, and leaving them there. Right? He saves them, and then he brings them to places like Newcastle. So membership's very important here. It's much more than just a piece of paper and a vote. You do get those things. But it's a commitment to, to pray and love, to encourage, to give, to submit to, to others and to, to the, the leadership here to live out life in this church family. To, to walk in the light with each other as we seek to grow deeper and reach farther. Um, so it's, it's we're thankful to be able to announce some today. If it's something you haven't thought about, I, I would encourage you to. It is following in obedience what God calls us to, uh, to be in membership. So we have some folks here this morning that are ready to make that, that commitment. They've been saved and baptized. They've been through the membership class here. Uh, completed an elder interview with a couple of our elders where we got to hear their testimony and affirm uh, the movement of God in their lives. And so they're ready to, to become members here. So I'm going to read the, the names here. If you're in this service, if you would please come up. Uh, Pastor Kevin here has the, you do get the certificate, so we have one of those for you. Um, and then please stay up here so that I can pray for you. So in no particular order, we'll start with... Uh, Wendell and Carol Anlicker. The picture's up there so you can see who they are. Uh, Kyle and Marie Collins. Uh, Bob and Linda Cooper are in first. So, uh, Mike and Jen Humphreys. Tyler and Kara Nafziger. AJ and Josie Salmon. Mike and Brenda Shea. And Natalie Shea. This is a sweet, sweet thing. It is... Um, something we don't take for granted, that God is putting people together here, right? This is, I love how Tyson mentioned, not a one of you is here uh, by mistake today. 
There's no person that's a member here at Newcastle that's some kind of mistake. God has put each of you here. And that's so, so valuable. It's such a sweet thing. So if you would bow with me, let's pray. Father, our hearts are full as we stand before you this morning in your sovereign goodness. You've chosen not just to bless us with salvation through Christ, but then to give us the gift of community. You've seen it good that we would live out our Christian lives surrounded by those who have also tasted the goodness of salvation. So, Father, we thank you for this group of new members today. Thanks for bringing them here. Father, I pray that you'd bless them as they settle into the rhythm of, of serving and loving and living in your church here. Give them strength and wisdom and patience as you work through their individual gifts to bring praise and glory and honor to your name. Uh, thank you so much. It's just such a sweet thing to be able to welcome them in here. So, Father, you ask us to bring our needs to you, and we do have some of those in this congregation. Medical needs, we know there's surgeries coming up. We're thankful for some recoveries. We know that there's families who have lost loved ones. Father, death is real. It's a consequence of living on this earth. And so even when we know where saints have gone, they leave a hole uh, where they were. Uh, their presence is missed. And so I pray for comfort for families who are missing those, those pieces of their family, that you would give them comfort, that you would give them the reassurance of knowing that because of you, death is only temporary for us. So, Father, I want to pray for our Ben and Ailey Holman. We're so thankful for their family, for the, the presence they are here. Uh, as Ben uh, looks to, to go overseas for an extended deployment, we pray for your protection on him. Uh, keep him safe. Pray for Ailey and the kids as they're here, as they attempt to continue life um, without him here for a period of time, that you'd protect them. I pray that you would give us wisdom as a church to come around them, to be the support, to be the community uh, that they need uh, while get Ben is gone. And again, pray that you would bring him home safe. Uh, we're thankful, Father, that our Ukrainian family got moved in this week. Pray again, you'd help us to be Jesus to these folks. People have been displaced uh, literally from their country. Uh, help us to love, to see places where we can serve, to make sure that they feel welcome here. I pray for Josh this morning, for Pastor Josh Gerber, as he teaches us about hope from Second Kings. Uh, we, are, we are a people who have been gifted with a real hope. And so I pray move him as he speaks. Pray that our hearts would be open to hear the, the truth of the word that would sink deep into us, that we would be a people that resonate uh, with a hope that doesn't end with this life. So our partner church uh, this week is Living Hope Community Church in Bartonville. We pray for them. Pray for Pastor Art as he teaches today as they worship. I pray that you would prosper their ministry there. Lord, you're moving there in Bartonville through them. Again, a group of people, it's no mistake. Each one of those people there you have placed there, and I pray that you'd make them effective in their community. I pray for their elders and for their leadership that you'd sustain them um, as they work to serve their congregation. So I wanna pray yet for our GO partner, Scott Cruzy, with FCA. 
some praises here. Praise for new huddles starting this fall, for the doing sports God's way study, reaching into Morton and Metamora, the gospel going out to 60 coaches and athletes before a Washington wrestling camp. Father, it's an amazing thing, the work that you're doing through Scott, taking the gospel to places through athletics uh, that they won't come here to hear it on a Sunday, and yet uh, you take it to them through Scott. And so I pray that that gospel will be so effective uh, in the hearts of those. They know they're missing something. Help them to see that it is you, that it is the gospel. So we pray for Scott and his team. They make disciples through engaging and equipping, empowering. Help them to help people to know and to grow in Christ and lead others to do the same. So, Father, many words. Pray that you'd see our hearts here this morning. We acknowledge our dependence on you, that we can do nothing without your spirit moving. And so we lay us before you this prayer our new members, our service, our life. Lay it before you, ask that you would bless it. And we thank you in advance, knowing that you will. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we sing this song, make it a humble prayer as we sit under the preaching of Josh here in just a moment. Speak, 
help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And my grace will stand on your promises and my faith will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. You may be seated. to be with you today. Our hearts have been filled with overflowing joy, and we are just so excited to be here and to share God's Word with you. If you're able to stand with us, we will be reading from the book of 2 Kings this morning, 2 Kings chapter 6, and our ushers have Bibles. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll be glad to give you a Bible. So 2 Kings chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 24. I'll give you a moment to turn there. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, before you get to Psalms. So we're going to be reading uh, through, ch- through the end of chapter 6 and a little bit into chapter 7. Let's begin at verse 24 then. Afterward, Ben-Hadad of Syria mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria and they, as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for... 80 shekels of silver, and a fourth part of a cave of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you, from the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give me your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of this woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so, do so to me and much more, if the head of Elisha, the son of Sabbatath, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting at his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived... Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel at the gates of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall eat of it with your own eyes. You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Let us pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will open the windows of your storehouse today, that you will rain down your bread from heaven. God, we know that we live 
not by earthly bread, but by bread that comes from you. So feed us today, Lord. Give us that hope that only is made possible through you. And may our hearts and whole bodies be receptive to your word. Thank you again. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So in 1952, a lady by the name of Florence Chadwick was determined to swim from Catalina Island to California. It's about a 20-some mile swim, and she was seeking to be the first woman to do that. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel from both ways, and now she wanted to swim about this 22 miles from this island off to California. So she enters the water, but it was rather foggy that day, maybe like today, a bit chilly, and she could barely see the boats around her. And so as she's going through it, uh, they're telling her, they're encouraging her on the boats, keep going, keep going, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. She gets to a, with a, with about maybe a half mile or maybe a mile from land, and she just says, I'm done. And they, they kept saying, no, no, you're almost there. And she's just like, no, I'm done. So they pull her up, and later as she's talking to the reporters and things, she says, look, I'm not trying to make excuses, but if I had just been able to see the land, I probably would have made it. Well, about a year later, she decided to try again. And this time, uh, the weather was clear, uh, so she sets out, and she made it. Not only did she make it, but she beat the record by about two hours that was set by a man. So what was the difference between those two times? You may say it's the weather. You may say it's the conditions. All those are part of it. But we could also say it's because of hope. And the first time, she had lost sight of the destination. She became hopeless. The second time, she could see that destination. She didn't let the fog and the clouds distract her from where she knew. And she didn't go by her feelings. She kept pushing on, and she made it. So I believe that all of us are here today, and we're all looking for one very precious commodity. It's not something you can buy with money. Uh, it's something that only comes from God, and that's hope. So as you've been intermingling with each other, you've probably asked one another, how are you doing today? How, is, how are things going? And I'm sure our default answer is always, fine, great, really good. But I'd be willing to bet that that's probably not true for all of you. I'm willing to guess that there's some, at least one person here today, you don't have to raise your hand, there's at least that one person here today that's maybe struggling with hope. You're just feeling hopeless, and you're wondering how you're going to make it through the trials and the challenges and, and the things that you're facing in life. Well, without hope, it's really difficult to keep pressing forward. It's really hard to go on when we lose sight of that. Hope is not a long word, but it carries us a long ways. It's not a hard word, but it certainly gets us through hard times. But what is hope? What is hope? So when most people use that word hope, they think of it in terms of a worldly sense, like, I hope I win the lottery, or I hope things turn out for you, or maybe our only hope of this happening is... Uh, you know, whatever the case is. That's how we tend to use that word. It's, it's this uncertainty. It's this wishful thinking. But biblically, that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. There's a certainty with that word in the Bible. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's that confident expectation that God will act according to his promises and character, that he will bring his good plan to pass. Biblical hope is not uncertain. It's very certain. Biblical hope uh, believes the best. It believes that good will happen, not necessarily for your finances or for your health or for your job, but for our redemptive good. Biblical hope is not a cross-your-fingers kind of a thinking. It's as William Carey puts it, expect great things from God. 
Again, biblical hope is just more than thinking positive thoughts. Biblical hope is only possible because of God's work within us, because of what God has done. It requires, though, that we believe God's promises and trust in his character. Our worship verse for the day was Romans 15, 13. If you remember that, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may exist in hope? No. Languish in hope? No. Just have some hope? No. Abound in hope. Abound in hope. So Paul could have described God in any number of ways. He could have said the God of all love, the God of all grace, the God of all mercy. All of those are true. But what he, see, what he says here is the God of all hope. So through God's power and his grace, we can have hope. God desires not simply that we just have hope, but that you abound in hope. So can I ask you this question? How are you doing? If you had a gauge on you right now, like, a, like your phone does or your car does, what would your hope gauge say? Are you abounding in hope? Are you halfway full? Or maybe are you running on fumes or are you in the negative? So our text today is going to remind us of this point. You can have hope because of our great God who brings miraculous deliverance. You can have hope because of our great God who brings miraculous deliverance. And I never like to give people false hope. There's a lot of ways to give people false hope. Oh, don't worry about that. You know, statistically speaking, that'll never happen to you. Well, I don't know that. I only want to give biblical hope, and I hope you do too. So that's what we're going to see today is how to have biblical hope. Our sermon will focus on four main themes today from this text. Disobedience, disorder, deliverance, and danger. You don't have to remember those or write those down because our four points will bring those up. Now, you probably didn't come to church today expecting to hear about a donkey's head or dove's dung, much less eating those things, much less eating children, right? I doubt any of you woke up and was like, oh, I hope I hear that story today. <laughs> this probably wasn't one you typically read. Uh, but let's see what it has to do with biblical hope and how God promises deliverance through texts like this. So the story takes place during the reign of King Jehoram, about 850 years before Christ, if you remember your biblical history, um, you have Israel as a nation was one until Solomon. And then following Solomon, you have Rehoboam coming on. And Rehoboam was approached by the elders who said, hey, can you lighten up on the people? We think you'll, they'll serve you better if you'll just lighten up on them a bit. If you remember Rehoboam's response, he says, uh, I'll take that under advisement. And then he turns to his friends, the young men, and asks them what they think. And they say, hard. They haven't seen nothing yet. You show them hard. So Rehoboam comes back. Uh, I'm going to really lay the law down on you. And the kingdom splits. So then you have the northern ten tribes, which are referred to as Israel, and the southern two tribes, Judah. So Judah has Jerusalem there. It's the, the line of kings in the southern kingdom is the line of David. That's through whom God made his covenantal promises to. The northern um, kingdom, Israel, their, their capital is Samaria, and they also have kings. But typically what you see is the kings in the northern kingdom uh, were shorter, and they were very bad. The kings in the southern kingdom, Judah, lasted longer, and they were good. Uh, but as you're reading Kings and Chronicles, it can get really confusing. And a lot of people lose it when, you know, as they're reading through the Bible when they come into here because they're like, oh, I thought I read about that guy before. 
Didn't he have the same name? Or what, what are we talking about him for? So you just have to understand Kings and Chronicles, it'll switch, switch gears a lot. Sometimes it's talking about a king of Judah. Then it'll go to a king of Israel. And then it might switch back or it might stay with another king. You know, so you kind of got to know who it's talking about. But that's really what we see in the, in the context of this as to what's happening. Um, so back to Jehoram. He is the king at this time. Uh, his parents, his dad was King Ahab. Don't know if you remember King Ahab, but if you're thinking about bad kings, uh, King Ahab tops the list. He's like number one on the list of the people not to be. And so as bad as he was, his wife is even worse, and that's Jezebel. We don't hear any parents naming their children Jezebel these days, and there's a reason for that. Well, she was very, very evil. Uh, so Jeho um, Jehoram, uh, in, back in chapter 3, it says he wasn't as bad as his dad. So that's a good thing, right? He's not as bad as Ahab was, but God never stops there. So God recognizes degrees of wickedness. You may, need, you may not be as bad as somebody, but God's never content with that. He still calls Jehoram out for not following fully in his ways. So the book of Kings really points out there's no room for compromise in God's economy. And that's really what this story fits into a bigger context of. The people have been compromising. They're trying to take God and other religions and mix them together. And God is saying, it's not going to work that way with me. You have to worship me exclusively. And if you don't, I'm going to deal with you. So back to our story now. Uh, we have the capital city of Israel, Samaria. It's surrounded by the Syrian army. And things are really, really, really bad. It's hard to understate that. Uh, a donkey's head. Don't know if you've had a donkey's head to eat lately. Probably not. But those are not very nutritious. For the Jews, those would have been viewed as unclean. So to even eat a donkey's head, would be, that would be reserved for like, you have no other options. And dove's dung, do I need to say anything more about that? I don't think so. So you can see the desperation in their condition when they're resorting to this kind of food and the prices. The prices are incredibly high. The, the normal average wage was one shekel. So if you're selling a donkey's head for 80 shekels, you can see the desperation in that. Uh, but things aren't, we haven't even gotten to the worst part of it yet. So we'll get there. But our first point is this, disobedience leads to distress and despair disobedience leads to distress and despair. So we want to begin with this question, how did Israel get in this condition? How, how did they arrive there on that particular day? You may be tempted to think, well, that was just bad luck. Uh, maybe that was just a combination of circumstances or just different things going on. None of those are true, though. They are in this condition because God has them there. They are in this condition because of their sin, because of their refusal to obey God and follow Him. And it's brought them to this place. So the principle of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, really is this, that disobedience will lead you to distress and despair. It's just as simple as that. So Jehoram, the only reason he's been around so long is because of God's grace. God is a very graceful God. You can see the high food prices. You can see the shortages that they're facing. But this disobedience has even led to more than that. As the king is passing along one day, he hears, he hears this woman cry out to him, King, King, I have this request. And notice the coldness to his response. If the Lord won't help you, who do you think I am? So you see at this point, things are just pretty hopeless here, right? The king literally doesn't have anywhere to go. The woman doesn't have anywhere to go with this. 
So the, the king then asks her to describe the problem, and she tells this story that is very churning, makes our stomachs churn. She worked out a deal with this other lady uh, that day one, they would boil and eat her son, and the next day, they do the same thing to the other woman's son. Well, she starts first. She makes a mistake of going first, and the next day, she goes to find this other lady and her son, and he's nowhere around, all right? So she's crying out to the king for justice. So I want to emphasize with this uh, that things don't just seem hopeless. Things really are hopeless here. And I'd like to ask you that question. Have you ever been to that place in your life? Have you ever been to the place where things seemed beyond hopeless? Where, where you thought that God needed to act before midnight, but now it's 12.01. Have you ever been there? Well, if you have, then there's a lot you can relate to about our text today. We want to begin with the premise that apart from God, there truly is no hope. The only reason I can communicate hope to you today is because God offers us hope. He is the God of all hope. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 reminds us that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So again, apart from Christ, things just don't seem hopeless. Things truly are hopeless because there is no hope. But the good news is God promises you hope through Jesus Christ. If you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the most hope that anybody could have. So I want to encourage you today. Maybe you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ and things are pretty difficult and things seem hopeless. That's exactly right. But that can change. And that begins with placing your faith and trust fully in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, clinging to him alone. He is our only source of hope. Maybe you're here today because there's been a lot of things pulling at you and you're, you're sort of been pulled in a lot of ways. And you need that reminder that apart from Christ, there truly is no hope. So maybe that's, that's the focus today is to get back centered fully on Jesus Christ alone for your hope. For the believer, did you know that this life is the greatest hell you'll ever experience? And life is hard, no question about that. Many of you are going through some very challenging things. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the worst hell you'll experience. And so I want to remind you of that, encourage you with that, that clinging to God, trusting Him and Him, looking to Him to hope, doesn't guarantee that your life is going to be easy, but it does mean that you have blessing and help from the Lord. And so I'm going to encourage you to look to Him alone today. So the king hears the woman's story. Uh, and he sees the desperate situation that everyone's in. And the king is going to respond. Now, people in trouble have two options. Okay, you can write these down, but people in trouble have two options. And I'll show you both of these from, uh, some, from, from some text here. So keep your finger in your Bible. We're going to come back to this story. But flip ahead a couple of books to Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 22. So Chronicles is the next set of books ahead of this. Second Chronicles 28, verse 22. You have another king, King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is in another similar situation. He's surrounded by an enemy army, a stronger army, the Assyrians, and he really has nowhere to go either. And verse 22 says this, In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. So response number one in time of trouble is to turn away from the Lord. It's to trust in self. It's to trust in another person or thing instead of the Lord. 
And that result results in destruction and disobedience, just like Ahaz experienced. But that's not the only option. So flip ahead just a couple more chapters to 2 Chronicles 33, verse 12. 2 Chronicles 33, 12. Here we have Manasseh, and he is yet another king and yet another situation, similar situation, surrounded by the enemy. In fact, it's even worse for him because he's been taken into captivity to Babylon. But his response is in chapter 33, verse 12. It says, And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And if you read that story, he is freed and brought back to the land. So option number two is trusting in the Lord, humbling ourselves, depending on him. And in that, we find God's help and favor. The story today that we've read also really displays the hopelessness of political deliverance. The hopelessness of political deliverance. So this woman appeals to the king. He was the highest source of authority that she could go to. And she calls to him for help. And he says, I've got no answers for you. There's, there's no law I can pass. There's no bill I can enact that will fix your problems. So political help does no good when it's the Lord's hand who had brought the problem and it's the Lord who has the solution. The king reminds her that if the Lord is not going to help, then who is he to help? There is no help that he can offer in providing anything. But often I found that our response to many things these days to troubling situations is, what is the government going to do to help? Have you noticed that with high inflation and prices and just different things going on? People are demanding that the government do more to help them. Let's pass another law. Let's have another bill. Let's, let's let them do this or let them do that. And when trouble comes, I think there's a tendency to seek help first in Washington rather than in Christ. Here's a few questions you can ask yourself to maybe think about where you're at and your time of trouble. Where is your first response? Where are you headed toward first? Are your cries to Washington or are they to Christ? Do you find yourself asking, what will Washington do more than what will God do from this? Politics or prayer, do you spend more time thinking or, and reflecting about political issues than it is prayer? Is your mood more closely connected to political issues and responses rather than to Christ and his promises? Now, again, I'm not against political leaders or governments. I'm not against that. Uh, God did not design them, though, to be the solution to life's problems. Time and time again, God brings helpless situations into play so that he can see, he can hope, he can show people that Jesus is the, Jesus alone is the only answer they need. And maybe that's the spot you're in today. Maybe there's a hopeless situation in your life or something that you know you just don't have the resources for. That's exactly where God wants you with that. But that leads us to our second point. Disordered living prioritizes relief over repentance. Disordered living prioritizes relief over repentance. So what do people from this story, what are they wanting? Do you see anything about wanting repentance? No, they're wanting relief. But isn't that our default human nature? You see, we're born with a disorder. Yeah, you were born with a disorder. It's not one that medicine can fix. You can't go to the doctor and pick up a prescription for it. It's a worship disorder. And it results in a pattern of living that's against God. Because of sin, we have disordered lives that lead us apart from Christ. And Jesus alone brings order to the disordered lives that we have. 
So this audience that 2 Kings is written to is an audience in exile. They have been taken captivity because of their sin. And this story is meant to be an encouragement to them that they can remain hopeful, they can trust in God and press forward in faith because they can look back and see God's faithfulness and promises and they can, ha- can have hope. And that's the same that's true with us today. The story is meant to give us hope as we reflect on God's promises in nature. But notice how sin distorts all of this. Sin distorts our thinking, it distorts our judgment, it distorts our values. So time after time, God has been calling people to turn back to him for their sin, to repent, but they just don't get it. And I find the irony in this story is the people doing evil are the ones demanding justice. So look at that first with the woman with her child. I mean, keep in mind, this lady has boiled her child and eaten her child. She's overturned all maternal instincts and she's prioritized her happiness and her well-being over the life of her child. And yet, what is she doing? She's crying out for justice. Get that other lady. Get her. There's not one mention about anything she's done. It's all about getting that other woman. And the king too, who's he blaming for his problems? There's no mention of himself, what he's done to contribute to this. It's all about, well, let's get Elisha. Let's kill Elisha. And by the way, to blame, to go after God's prophet is really the same thing as going after God himself. So he is blaming God uh, for his challenges, for his problems. As I've been saying, when God is your greatest problem, only repentance and redemption are the solution. So I believe our default position in life is ABC. ABC. I'm born into the world. I believe we all are born into the world with this default position of ABC. What's that mean? I'm not talking about letters of the alphabet. I'm talking about anything but Christ, anything but Christ, anything but repentance, right? It's our default response, anything but repentance. Think about how we often respond when trouble faces us, especially when it's our own doing. Anything but Christ, anything but repentance. People will pay penance. They'll cry out. They'll say the right words. They'll promise never to do it again. Uh, They'll have all these outward signs of repentance without actually repenting in the heart. People will go to all extremes, but at the end of the day, they prioritize relief over repentance. They want relief from the consequences of sins instead of the relief the Lord offers that follows repentance. And this pattern continues throughout Scripture, relief over repentance, relief over repentance. Think of all the times that Israel faced God's discipline for their sin, and think of all the times they wanted to prioritize relief over repentance. Here's a few examples. And they did this by going to Egypt or Assyria instead of going to the Lord. So Isaiah 30, verses 1 to 3. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an allegiance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Or in Jeremiah 2.18, And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink of the waters of the Nile? What do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Now, I doubt that any of you, when faced with trouble, especially of your own doing, are pulling out your phones, checking Priceline for deals on... flight tickets to Egypt or Assyria, right? We're not doing that in our context, but this was really a metaphor for seeking help in other things, especially other nations who have oppressed them before, instead of turning to the Lord. 
And we're very good about doing that, if we're honest. I haven't met a lot of people in my life who don't agree that they need to change in some area. Almost everybody will agree, yeah, there's something in my life that I need to change. But here's the key, on my terms. So people will go with you in terms of change, often, as far as they will, as long as it's on their own terms. But at the point where it hits God's terms, that's the point they throw up their hands and say, nah, I just want the relief over the repentance. So the question for ourselves is this, are you seeking relief over repentance? And how might you know? Well, when you're aware of guilt, do you run away from God or do you run to God? Does guilt drive you to God or away from Him? When you're stressed, when you're worried, you're afra- when you're afraid, what do you find yourself turning to? What are the substitutes for God that you often cling to, whether drugs, alcohol, food, shopping, anything like that? Do you resist repentance? Are you more afraid of other people finding out than God knowing or what God thinks? Are you more concerned with the consequences of your sin than how that sin has been against God? So there may be somebody in this room today who is struggling with that, with seeking relief over repentance. Maybe you've been involved in kind of a train wreck in your life, and now you're at odds with family members, there's, there's just a lot of tension, and you want the consequences to go away. You want things to just go back to the way they were. And the danger for you is to seek relief over repentance, to not truly repent, but just want your circumstances to change. But maybe you're not in that condition today. Maybe you're thinking, well, looks like I'm off the hook. I'm not seeking relief over repentance. I'm, I handle my sin pretty good. Okay, okay. But could it be that you're seeking relief over redemption? Relief over redemption? So it's not wrong to pray for situations in our life to change. That's a good thing. Keep doing that. I would encourage you to keep doing that. But maybe you're struggling with relief over redemption in some other ways. Maybe you're a single person desiring marriage. There's nothing wrong with that, but be very careful of seeking relief over redemption, looking to find in another person something that only can be found in Christ. Maybe you haven't been able to have children. Now one of your friends is pregnant and she wants to tell you, but she isn't sure how you're going to respond to that. Again, it's not wrong to pray for your circumstances to change, but be careful of seeking relief over redemption. Maybe you're in a terrible marriage. You and your spouse uh, just don't get along. It seems like a dead-end marriage, always fighting. Uh, Maybe that person's an unbeliever. And you look around and you wish you had a a different marriage. And you want to just quit and give up. It's not wrong to pray that your situation would change. But be very careful of seeking relief over redemption. Wanting an easier life more than God's redemptive plan to change you. Again, we could keep going, but I think you see the point, right? Be careful of what we place over redemption and repentance. Now, up until this point, our story has been notably negative. We've been focused a lot on the bad, and we had to, right? We had to understand the hopelessness, the the depths of the sin and the trouble that we found ourselves in, but that's never where the story ends with God. There's always grace, and there's always good news. Now, that brings us to our third point. As Elisha is promising relief, he's promising God's deliverance. We want to delight in God's marvelous deliverance because we don't deserve it. Delight in God's marvelous deliverance because we don't deserve it. Now, Elisha has promised that on the the next day, there's going to be food available and it's going to be at lower prices. I've been struggling with this part of the message. Okay, this has been the hardest part for me. 
Uh, and I've been struggling in this way. You see, I could understand God's miraculous deliverance if the people had been crying out and confessing their sin and seeking God. I could understand why God would deliver them, right? That makes sense to me. Not because I don't think not because I think that they somehow earned it with God or that he was obligated to give that to him, but that's how God responds, doesn't he? When we cry out to him, we, when we turn to him in repentance, we find his grace and mercy to help in time of need. Absolutely. But did you catch that part in the story about their repentance? Do you remember what verse that was in? Don't look, it's not there, okay? It's just not there. There's nothing in the story to indicate these people have ever repented or cried out to God and yet, God still shows his miraculous deliverance to them. And to me, I just had to stop and, and, and just really, God, wow, I, I just, that, that's hard for me to get because they didn't deserve it. And that's exactly right. I believe we see three things in this, um, this, this account of God's deliverance. One, that God's deliverance is not based on our worthiness. It's not based on our worthiness. Secondly, that it defies human odds and expectations. And third, God's deliverance often comes through unlikely means. So the story makes it very clear that God does not base his grace, his deliverance, because of our worthiness. There's nothing in here to indicate that people have done anything to merit God's, uh, God's forgiveness, God's deliverance. And there's nothing they ever could do to do that. That's impossible. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the Jews had an understanding of grace, they, they knew what grace was, but they believed that grace was based on the worthiness of the recipient. So if you gave a gift to someone, it was based on how worthy they were. So the more worthy you are, the greater the gift. And the Jews often understood it to say, yes, we are recipients of God's grace, but there was something in us that we could hold to. There was something worthy about us that makes sense that God would show us grace and not those Gentiles. But see, Paul comes along then, Paul and the other New Testament writers, and really flips all that around and shows them, no, it doesn't work like that. No, you, from a human perspective, we don't give the most costliest gift to someone we deem unworthy, but not God, but not God. God's deliverance, God's grace is not based off our worthiness. The stunning nature of grace is this. He gives his favor to help, favor and help to people who aren't qualified. So I hope that's good news for you. Maybe today you've been, you've been maybe thinking too, maybe you're the, you, you've you found yourself in life before thinking, you know, I need to go to church, but I gotta clean my life up first before I can come to Christ. And it doesn't work like that, does it? We don't clean our lives up and then come to Christ. It's Jesus who does all that for us. So this fact that God's grace is not based on our worthiness is very freeing. If it was based on your worthiness, guess what? You better keep being worthy or you're going to lose it. But it's not based on your worthiness. It's, it's based on God's grace. But whose worthiness do we go back to? Jesus. God's grace comes because of Christ's worthiness. That was demonstrated by his sacrificial life, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. So God gives grace to unworthy people Secondly, God's deliverance defies all human odds and expectations. It just defies them. God, um, so in this story, we have no food, right? They have no military resources. There, there isn't anything they can do to free themselves. Uh, so how is all this food going to come that Elisha has been talking about? From our perspective, we're a lot like the disciples. 
We look at the loaves and the fishes that we have, and we start thinking of the multitudes that need fed, and we start doing the math in our minds and the calculations. Well, if I run here and there and here and there, I can maybe probably add up to, you know, that much. And God comes along and says, my math, uh, my math doesn't work like your math does. Praise the Lord on that. My math's a lot better. So in chapter 7, verse 6 here, we see the way that God brings this miraculous deliverance. And it says, for the Lord had made the sound of the army of the Syrians to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the armies of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. God defeats this great army of the, Syri the Syrians by this, not by a flood, not by a mighty man, not by a fire, not by the earth swallowing, but by a rumor. That's it. That's all it took for God was just a word, just a rumor. And the whole army abandoned and left. That is God's miraculous deliverance. Against all odds, God delivers. So it's never based on human odds. Just think of the other times in scripture where we see that. Gideon with his 300 men winning the victory or the Israelites being backed up to the Red Sea and the Red Sea opening up and, and allowing them to pass and then swallowing the enemy. David, as he goes against Goliath with just a stone and a sling, time and time again, God's deliverance exceeds and defies all odds and expectations. But what about the greatest act of deliverance, the one that tops all of those? A baby born of a young virgin in a lowly manger with a humble upbringing, a quiet childhood, nothing of notoriety in his childhood except an interest in synagogues. The legitimacy of his birth was doubted. His family thought he was out of his mind. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He died a criminal's death. He was sealed in the tomb of a rich man, guarded by a large stone and a squad of soldiers. Against every step and twist, God, God's act of deliverance for humanity was unexpected and against all odds. Since when does God become a man? Since when do dead men rise? Since when does a king become a servant and die a criminal's death, taking on the sins of his people so that we might live? And since when, do, when is salvation given to spiritually dead and undeserving people? So God's deliverance is displayed in Jesus Christ. If you, if you doubt God's deliverance for your situation today, I would encourage you to look no further than the cross. That is the supreme act of deliverance that we have. So do you feel like all odds are against you for your situation? Do you feel like you only have not even a snowball's chance in a hot oven to make it through it? If so, then good. You're in the exact place God wants you to be where, you only, where your only option is to look to Jesus alone for your hope. Now third, notice the unlikely servants that God uses in his deliverance. The unlikely servants. So there in, chapter, in verse three, we have four men who are described as lepers. So of all the people God could have used to bring deliverance to the people, he uses the outcasts. He uses the ones that everybody else thought were unclean. And, and he uses the marginalized to bring his deliverance. Later on, you're going to see uh, another unnamed servant encouraging the king to send out troops, send out some messengers to, to make sure this thing is really real. Because the king just wanted to give up. He was like, nah, that's a trap. We're not going out there. But these unnamed servants come along to the king and say, king, at least check this thing out. So has God ever brought deliverance into your life through maybe people you didn't expect? Maybe through unnamed servants? Maybe through the people that you would have viewed as definitely not the way God would have brought it about? 
Maybe it was a, a, ma- a person with tattoos, a lot of covered in tattoos, with riding a motorcycle. Maybe it was somebody smoking in the back alley. Maybe it was somebody who smelled and looked a lot different than you do. Maybe it was someone who talked different or who was raised different. The point is the same. God uses unlikely servants in his plan of deliverance for us. He uses people whom society often marginalizes and doesn't consider the right fit for it. Even in a situation like today, what are, we, what are you evaluating today? Are you looking for a great sermon? Are you looking for education, for wisdom, experience? I'm not saying those don't have their places, but think about how, God, how God's evaluation matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So if you're looking for an appropriate response to God's miraculous deliverance, here's one word for you. Marvel. Marvel at God's deliverance that's not based on human performance or worthiness. Marvel at God's deliverance that defies all odds and expectations. Marvel at God's deliverance that comes through unlikely servants. And when you start to worry, when you start to be afraid, when you start to lose sight, then marvel again. You might think our story is done at this point. Is he about done? Well, almost. But there's one more point we're going to make here. We have to end with a warning. So most products you buy these days have a warning label on them. But did you know that grace has a warning label too? It does. You may not have thought that before, but grace comes with a warning label. You notice there, uh, and this fourth point is this, destroy doubt through the framework of God's lenses. Destroy doubt through the framework of God's lenses. So it sounded very simple just to believe God's word that on the next day, God's deliverance would come, but not everybody believed it. The king, uh, the captain of the king, I should say, his right-hand man doubted. He said, if the Lord himself would make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? When it comes to grace, we have to know that faith is required both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Whatever God promises, we are required to believe no matter how unlikely it sounds. Think of all the unlikely things that God has promised us that we must believe. The next time you're at a funeral, think of John 14, 19, that because Jesus lives, we will live. Does it seem unlikely that dead people will will live again? Yeah, it may, but we are required to believe that. What about Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Looking around the world right now, does it seem unlikely that one day this will happen, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? Maybe so, but we're still required to believe it. Perhaps there's some in this room today who are really uh, entangled in some sin. You're caught up in it and you just have these sinful habits and you don't feel like there's any hope or freedom from that. Will things ever be different? Will you ever change? What does Romans 6.14 say? For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. It may not feel like sin um, won't have dominion over you, but you're required to believe what God has promised. Or finally, what about John 10.28? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Does it seem unlikely? Well, even so, we are still required to believe it. 
So grace is dangerous if we refuse not to believe it. Grace is dangerous if we don't accept it. Grace is dangerous if you just hang around but never put that fully in your life. At the core, it's not that complicated, is it? Just believe what God has said. Just fully rest on Christ alone for your salvation, not on anything within yourself. Just believe it. But we know while people can get it intellectually, they can struggle in the outworkings of that. They understand the facts, but they struggle to live it out. They're always trying to fall back on some aspect of themselves. So I want you to consider Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to attain the grace of God. See to it. So you can be born in a Christian home. You can have a Christian upbringing. You can uh, read the Bible. You can go to a lot of Bible studies. You can even teach in the church, all of those things. But if you're refusing to believe God's undeserved grace, you find yourself in a dangerous spot. See to it. See to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Don't let unbelief regarding God's promises hinder your hope today. So what's that look like? How do you fight doubt with hope? Well, one way is to meditate deeply on the promises and nature of God. Secondly, you can remind yourself of the hope of the gospel, the hope that Christ brings to the good news of the gospel. Third, you can speak truth to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Fourth, you can pour out your cries and troubles to the Lord. And then fifth, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Draw near to the throne of grace where you will find his mercy to help in time of need. So I'd like to end with this. What are five ways in which you can encourage someone this week with biblical hope? I'm not talking false hope. I'm talking biblical hope. I would challenge you with that. Look for five ways in which you can encourage somebody this week with biblical hope. So let's end by going to the Lord in prayer and asking him to cultivate this hope in our lives. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that hope only comes from you, Lord Jesus. Apart from you, there is no hope. And I'm very, very thankful today that there is hope available. And the best news is it's free. It costs no one any money to have this hope. They don't have to go to the store and buy it. They just believe. So Lord, you have promised all of the hope we need to meet all of the situations and challenges that we actually will face this week. I know there are many in this room today, God, who this coming week will face some trying and challenging things. God, you've not offer, offered hypothetical grace and hypothetical hope. You offer real grace and real hope for what truly we will face. So I pray today, Lord, that all, everyone in this room can cling to that biblical hope. And finally, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not yet surrendered their life to you, who is still clinging to some false hope, that they will leave that all beside today, that they will cast off that self-reliance and cling to you alone for their salvation. It's in your name I pray, amen. Well, please stand and let us sing in response about the hope of grace we have in Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all 
dying thief rejoice to see that fountain in his day and there may i though vile as he wash all my sins Jesus has power to save. Amen. He has power to save you. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter how hopeless or how dark or how difficult or how deep, Jesus has power to save. Do not believe Satan's lies that you are beyond the saving grace of Jesus. 
Jesus has power to save. The ransomed church of God is saved to someday sin no more. That is good, good news, church. That is good, good news. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation in Jesus' kingdom. So let's celebrate the saving grace of God together. Let's continue to pray for each other. Let's walk in humility. Let's walk in faith. Let's walk in prayer. Let's walk in love for each other, for the glory of God together. Josh, thank you so much for preaching the gospel to us today from such a crazy text. But well done. Well done. If you don't know, on the back of the notes page, Josh has provided a number of really excellent study resources, kind of next steps, discussion questions. Make sure you take advantage of those this week. I know that they will be a great encouragement to you as well. Let's pray our benediction now. Uh, We're going to pray from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. I'd invite you all to pray it out loud together with me as we go. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all those that are trusting in God's power to save would say, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.